When did you learn about democracy? When did it imprint on you? When did you absorb it into yourself? So I will say I am of the schoolhouse rock generation. Now, back in the day, Saturday morning cartoons had to include a certain amount of educational programming, certain number of minutes of educational programming. And thus came into being Schoolhouse Rock uh, that included short songs and animated cartoons. Uh, they were created to inform children about numbers and grammar and history and democracy, right. including, including the preamble to the Constitution. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice and secure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of a liberty. To ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this constitution. For the United States of America. Right? Right? I mean, that'll get your attention, right? Even if you're like, where are the cartoons? That'll get your attention. We the people. We the people. What a powerful, powerful statement. We can do this. We create the world because we debate and vote and dream of a perfect union and take care of each other and take care of the future as well. What powerful magic. Every person having a say. Every one of us. And, and it's no small thing. It is also uh, part of our religious statements as well. It's not just a civic uh, endorsement. It's not just based in our country. It's also a religious statement in our Unitarian Universalism. Thought that that value of every vote and a democratic process was worthy of being named and included in how we talk about our understanding of, of living and how we are called to be in this world. You know, we, the member congregations, do covenant to affirm and promote the right of conscience and the democratic process. Right? Doing so, creating this statement, not just as a civic thing, but as a religious thing, places us in relationship with our history as well, the liberal religious tradition of which we are a part. Way back in the 1600s, in the early 1600s, there were forming and functioning from lateral relationships between people and congregations. In our foundational organizing document, for example, in 1648, the Cambridge Platform that established congregational polity how we are interdependent and interconnected with each other. 
and how we need to be all participating in the process of creation um, of our lives. And we do this, this is not just a relic of the past, it is living into our present, into, into this moment, into this day. You know, our, our gathering this, after, uh, this, af- this afternoon after the service is exactly that, where every member has a vote. We will choose what our social impact priorities are for this year from proposals created by people in the congregation. We the people called democracy into being, as Quaker teacher Parker Palmer reminds us. It called democracy into being, but not one that was a fixed permanent, immobile, uh, immutable state of existence. It was one that would evolve and flow and uh, change and shift over time as people came into this world and thought more and discovered more and changed their minds and made other plans and figured out what was needed for the moment, not simply when this was all created uh, in the 1700s. It was an experiment, the great beta test of our society, if you will. Parker Palmer uh, talks about uh, the, the core of this experiment in his five habits to heal the heart of democracy. He says, heart, he talks about heart, comes from the Latin core, C-O-R. So its original meaning points to the core of the human self, that center place where all our ways of knowing converge. The intellectual, the emotional, the sensory, the intuitive, the imaginative, the experimental, the relational and bodily, and so on. The heart is where we integrate what we know in our minds and what we know in our bones, he says, the place where our knowledge can become more fully human, And core is also the Latin root from which we get the word courage when all that we know of self and the world comes together in the center place of the heart. We are more likely to find the courage to act humanely on what we know. So the foundational principle uh, of our, some foundational principles of so much of our country are based on this integration of the self that each person can have, that each person needs to have as we function together. And as Terry Tempest Williams puts it, the human heart, he says, is the first home of democracy. It is where we embrace the questions, can we be equitable? Can we be generous? Can we listen with our whole beings, not just our minds, and offer our attention rather than our opinions? Ooh, we might take a note on that today. Can we offer our attention and not just our opinions? And do we, do we have enough resolve in our hearts to act courageously, relentlessly, without giving up ever, trusting our fellow citizens 
to join with us in this determined pursuit of a living democracy. Can we do this consistently, ongoing, without giving up trusting our fellow citizens to be part of this with us? I think that last question's really been a big question in recent years. Can we continue to live courageously and not give up on our fellow human beings and not give up on ourselves either? I think that's the question that I keep, have been coming, keeps emerging for me in the course of thinking about uh, the recent election and the, the, uh, this month's theme around change, last month's theme for courage, is wondering where our connections have come from and wondering how they are doing. The collectiveness, our ability to be together as, as a country and as um, in living out this courageous choice of democracy. It takes a great strength of the heart. But what's also true, what's also true is how often our hearts get broken. This is partially where the question comes, can we keep doing this? How often trying to act out of democracy, out of act out of understanding that everybody, everyone has a voice and a vote, how much that can also break our heart. I know mine has been struggling with how much our process has been treated in the last, well, few years in particular, but, but the last decades as well. Let's not underestimate how long this has been running how much democracy in our country has been undermined actively. How many of our neighbors feel they are find that it's more difficult to participate, more difficult to cast a vote. How many of us across the country feel that our voice won't be counted, will not be regarded, and the result of that is, leads to withdrawal, and not investing in the process or in the governance and not having any faith that it will be otherwise. Being able to have a vote is a matter of life and death. And the ability to even have a say over our lives, over our bodies. Because regardless of the results of this week's elections, we would have needed this conversation. Because as I was reminded recently, this democracy practice is a long game. It is a long project. And how important it is to show up. Part of that showing up is to actively engage in the conversation between democracy and our social contract, how we relate to one another, how we can find the courage to rely on each other 
to be in this voting process, to be in this great democratic experiment. I was wondering, for all that, some point along the way, had a, uh, had a, a, a grounding of democracy in our lives when that heartbreaking shows up. You know, for me, it's not been any one particular election, although there have been a few. For me, it was seeing, getting a real sense of how much people have been kept out of the process systematically for centuries. You know, I admit I really didn't think much about democracy and voting. My spouse, who was a, a political science major might cringe at this. I'm so sorry. But I didn't think about a whole lot about democracy until reading uh, in about 2013, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. In that book, she lays out the layers of ways in which black men in particular end up going through the school to prison pipeline and have their ability to vote stripped away in the process, never to be restored. It is an act of disenfranchisement of a major portion of our population that is entirely invisible as a result. Millions of people, millions of people can never make a choice, and that has a generational impact. Imagine the children who then see that their, you know, their their parent or their male relatives are no longer able to participate in the system. Would that inspire confidence? Would that encourage their own participation? For some, it would. And for others, it would be, well, what's the point? And everything in between. Or just plain rage at being removed from that participation. I think that moment of reading part of that part of the new Jim Crow, because she opens with it in the first few pages, five pages in, you get it. It's right there. How much, how long the legacy of disenfranchisement for folks who are black, indigenous, and people of color is active in our country. How many people will never, ever have the vote? It represents such a loss of relationship. How can you have courage in the ability of your neighbor to work together with you when your neighbor has no way, doesn't, has no way to participate in that sense? When one is concerned simply about such basic um, basic permissions, basic participation in our society, it makes it very hard to be open to someone, to be flexible, to listen, as Terry Tempest Williams invites us. Can you be open enough to listen and not simply jump to an opinion? How much, I was realizing how much we need 
our social contract to be with each other and to be working with each other. Even as limited and problematic as past incarnations of our social contract, past presumptions of our social contract have been. I was recently watching the TV show Mad Men. It's set in 1960 to 1970 in New York, and the show is praised in particular for its accuracy in the style, in the um, set design, in people's costumes and behavior and language, and also all the biases of the time. You know, society as a whole still remembered the successes of World War II, how powerful it was to pull together as a nation. But what's also true is that white society operated under a shared sense of connection and civility. And it included a hierarchy where white, straight, able-bodied men were at the top and, and there were gradations all the way down. But the power of our capacity for civility and togetherness is still, is still so powerful to be able to trust each other, to participate in our world. You know, it showed up again. The power of that civility and togetherness showed up again at the beginning of the pandemic, for example, where people stayed home to protect each other as well as ourselves. Those of us who were younger didn't want to risk spreading the disease to our more vulnerable elders. And we did. But, but what also followed was being in a country that was already stressed by our economic systems and how many people are underpaid and not able to feed their children or have decent health care. While we are in the midst of rapidly increasing shifts in our environment, the enormous strain of the pandemic further, further war onto our social relationships. And then we have elections that are being entirely actively denied and blamed on others. So where is trust possible? You have this idea of every person having a vote and a voice. Where does this come from? Parker Palmer says, if American democracy fails, the ultimate cause will not be a foreign invasion or the power of big money or the greed and dishonesty of some elected officials or a military coup or the internal communist, socialist, fascist takeover that keeps some Americans awake at night. It will happen, he says, because you and I and we become so fearful of each other, our differences and of the future, that we unravel the civic community upon which democracy depends, losing our power to resist all that threatens it and call it back in its highest form. It would happen because we become so fearful of each other and of our differences and of the future that we would unravel our civic community. So what's the path? How to prevent, reduce, stop, maybe stop this unraveling? 
I think one of the first places is to let our broken hearts be broken open. We let our hearts be broken open as a church. We've done this. We keep doing this. When we started to engage in the racial equity effort in 2000 as part of the larger racial justice reckoning in our society, would that it didn't come at the cost of lives such as Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Armad uh, Arbery. We have to live with that heartbreak and we have to live with that knowledge and the knowledge of so many people who have died in the great experiment of we the people or who have lost the vote or lost agency or lost choice and hope. But could that make us more compassionate, more sympathetic, more recognizing the cherishing the value of humanity? Because the story doesn't stop with being brokenhearted. If we let the story stop there, we fail as a church, as a faith, as people. The story doesn't stop when our, the breaking of our hearts and the loss and our own anxiety and losses of hope. But we can let our hearts be broken, our broken hearts be broken open by, and moved by stories of decency and community and care small and large, individual and communal. We can let the brokenness of our hearts be a chance for changing and transformation. We can be honest about the challenge as well, as honest as possible without running away and hiding, as tempting as that sometimes is. We the people is enormously diverse, more than more most of us can fully comprehend. And some of us truly don't, some of us, we have to admit, truly don't want justice, equity, and compassion among human relations. There is an uphill battle there. But a new civility, a new gathering together, a new commitment can take that all into account. Acknowledge what got us here and what is needed to move forward. It is indeed a long game. Because just because it's hard doesn't mean we stop. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you give up. We gather every week because we trust and have faith that we can help each other when we doubt and despair. You know, I thought my children would have a better life, but the storm that is coming in the form of the environment is terrifying. And as human beings, we'll still debate who makes medical decisions for our bodies, just to name two. But the opening of the heart leads to the possibility of mutuality because no one of us can or needs to strive alone. And as a faith, we hold true humanity, worthiness, that each of us has a story and a life connected to each voice and each vote. Our Buddhist teachings remind us of the scope of the struggle. Our faiths, our world traditions point us to compassion. Our science reminds us of how all is connected. There are reasons why we go for a democratic process.
And in this work, we can regain and restore and find new ways to trust. Because we know what's still not changed is that every voice and every vote is worthy, and we still operate from there. I so appreciate Parker Palmer. When all that we know of self and world comes together in the center place called the heart, we are more likely to find the courage to act humanely on what we know. We are more likely to find the courage to act humanely on what we know. So let us go forth and act. Let us go forth and keep living into this democratic process. Let us go forth and offering our answer to the ever-present ongoing experiment of this world to keep discovering our heart and our courage and our yes. Amen.